Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Divine Disturbance by Pastor Sean Wood. We're going to uh, prepare to come around God's Word. Let's pray before we do. Glorious Father, you are always speaking. Holy Spirit, we thank you. You are in this room. We ask that you would allow us to have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what it is you have to say to each one of us. In your wonderful name, amen. Amen. Let me tell you a story as we begin this morning. Let me tell you a story about a factory, brand new factory with state-of-the-art equipment. Uh, everything you could imagine that was needed, brand new equipment, everything's very, very flash. A visitor comes to the factory and notices that all of the machines are, are new and wonderful, but, but they're not moving and they're not working. So he says, you know what? I think I know what the problem is. He says, oil the machines. So the owner of the factory says, of course. So he goes around and he oils all the machines. Turns out that doesn't make any difference at all. The machines are well oiled, yes, but nothing appears to be happening. It's not long before another visitor comes and and he says, you know what, I think what you really need to do, uh, it's great that you've oiled the machines, but you know what, perhaps you should paint the walls and redo the drapes. So he goes, of course, it's, we've got to decorate the factory. So we, we, re, we redo the carpets and the walls and, and the drapes and everything looks great, but nothing's working. And then a Tasmanian visitor walks in. <laughs> and, and he says to the owner, he says, you know, I'm glad you've oiled the machines and, and the decorating looks great, but perhaps if you plug them in. And the owner goes, of course. Take his Tasmanian to work it out. If you want things done right. Uh, And so they plug it in and everything begins to work. And although I've just described a factory, uh, my heart bleeds because perhaps in many respects and in certain sections, I've just described the church. You know, we've become really good at getting new machinery and painting the floors and, and putting new drapes in. We've become really good at sharpening up our programs and, and being able to read statistics and, and all those sorts of things. But I wonder whether the greatest need in the Church of Jesus Christ today is for us to plug in. Maybe we're missing the power. I, I want to read to you some statistics as we get a lay of the land. Uh, The statistics I'm going to read you is a survey that was done across many evangelical as well as charismatic churches in America. Uh, Ligonier Ministries uh, every two years do what they call a theological snapshot survey. Uh, They survey thousands of people, they ask them a range of questions and here's the percentages that came out which will lay the foundation for where we're going. You will be shocked, I hope, and horrified to know that 53% of Bible-believing Christians in the United States right now believe that the Bible, like all other sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. A 65%, it gets better, 65% of Bible-believing Christians in the United States agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Forty-two percent believe that gender identity is a matter of choice. 
46% believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behaviour does not apply today. 56% believe that God accepts worship of all religions, including, you'd be pleased to know, Judaism and Islam this morning. 56%. 43% say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That 43%, if they answer that question that way, that 43% are not converted. If Jesus is not God, you are not saved. 38% say that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not objective truth. 48% agreed that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. My Bible teaches me... My Bible teaches me that my God is unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He's the sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise God. I'm not sure, I'm not sure where we went wrong. Uh, 65% of church folks say that everybody is born innocent in the eyes of God. So why do we even need a saviour? But that in fact, uh, sin is the product of uh, our environment and the worldview that we are born into. Uh, I'm sorry, but the first few pages of the Bible teach me that we are all born with the seed of Adam and that we need a saviour. I've given you some this morning. I've let you off the hook. Uh, This morning we have to have lunch, so I'll let you off some of the other questions. You can look these up for yourself, but if you think that Australia is removed from these statistics, we are not. And we wonder why, uh, or we ask the question, what is the greatest need in the church today? Good news this morning is that I believe and I see a vision. I want to help everybody to see the same vision this morning. I see a vision of a church which is a great army. Uh, A church that Jesus is built, that knows the God of the Bible as he's revealed in the Bible, but not just with all of the machinery and well-oiled machines, but plugged into the power. What does that look like? And where are we going? I'm glad you're asking really good questions this morning. I want to begin and lay the foundation. We're going to jump around, but I want to lay the foundation in Ezekiel chapter 37. And the reason for that is, uh, I love this chapter, and Ezekiel is a weird kind of a prophet if you're reading your way through his book. Uh, He sees some pretty... Uh, weird stuff that they kind of haven't seen since the 70s, but it seems to be true. And uh, uh, Ezekiel, after prophesying for many years, after losing his wife, uh, sees a vision. And what context brings us to chapter 37 is the people of God, Israel at this point in time, uh, the the city of Jerusalem lays in ruins, the temple has been levelled, most of the uh, people from uh, Jerusalem and Judah have now been taken into exile, Uh, they've kind of gotten used to being in Babylon, most of them are saying, you know what, it's not too bad here, the food's all right, the lifestyle's okay, Uh, they've kind of drifted and blended into the culture. It's very hard at this point in time to tell the difference between some of God's people and those from Babylon. You'd be pleased to know there's still a contingency, a small amount, a remnant that decided we are going to serve the Lord. But here's what God shows Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 37 verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. And he set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full 
of bones. And so what Ezekiel sees, he, he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And in recent weeks and months, I have really felt the Lord asking that question of me. Uh, can the church of Jesus Christ live? Can the community, uh, we are surrounded by a valley of dry bones, can they live? Is there hope for the church? We live in a culture today that tells us God is dead, science has buried God. I'm not sure what science they're looking at. Uh, The science I look at is unveiling and revealing the awesomeness of, of our creator. But apparently God is dead and science has buried. We don't need God anymore. We don't need the church. Look how that's working out for everybody We want to take teaching and prayer. We want to take that out of the schools. We want to take that out of our parliament. Look how that's working out at the moment. We live in a culture today that says the church would be like this valley of dry bones. You know, they're there, but there's no life. There's no no meat. God doesn't leave his people there and he will not today as we read on. He led me around among them and they were dry. Verse uh, verse 3, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I love Ezekiel's answer. I don't know how many times in my life I found myself answering this the same way that Ezekiel does. Oh Lord, you know. Or in the King James, Lord, thou knowest. So that's got to be the right one, Uh, uh, Brother Richard. Lord, thou knowest. I don't know how many times I have stood and said, Lord, I don't know. Why? Because this world is full of mysteries and answers and questions. I can't answer all the questions. God, you know, you know how. And Ezekiel says, oh, Lord, you know. Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Two really important things uh, here that I want to pull out and say to them here, the word of the Lord. It is time for the church, our commitment here, I'll unpack this more as we move along, our commitment, why would you come to the rock? I want you to know that if you find yourself at the rock or any department that we do, you will hear the word of the Lord. Martin Luther, the 1500s reformer, Martin Luther then talking to the Catholics, says to them, you're looking for power in your rituals, in your garments, in your decorations, all these other things. He says, God put the power in the book. Says to them, hear the word of the Lord. We're going to see in a moment that this is nothing new under the sun. We're going to see in a moment when God actually did this in history. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath, spirit, to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. You shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if you read on through the chapter, Ezekiel does exactly that. He begins to prophesy. The bones begin to come together. He sees sinew forming on the bones as the word of the Lord goes forth. And then into those bones, life is breathed. And if I can see a church. I hope everybody can begin to see, but I see a group of people that are a great army, just as Ezekiel sees, unified, drawn together on a common 
common belief, common ground, uh, but also full of the power of the Holy Spirit and living according to God's word. The immediate application for this chapter is speaking about the restoration of Israel back into their land. That happens. But it's messianic. It's speaking about the time of Christ also. And I, I hope that we don't only see this, but we see that God has done this. And I, I want to uh, now move this into the New Testament and unpack my heart. I, I believe uh, my prayer is that God would do a work that is both deep and wide. So that's a deep work in each one of our own hearts, but also a work that is wide, impacting the community. I want to be a church that causes, and more about this in a moment, a divine disturbance. Uh, I want to disturb the community around me. I want to, I believe uh, that we can be a church that lives in the power of God and according to his word to such an effect, we will cause a divine disturbance in this community and a divine disturbance amongst the body of Christ. It's happened before. And I want to help you to see that. If you've got your Bibles, you want to follow me, uh, you can shoot over to Acts chapter 19. Uh, this is a really, re- I, I love this chapter. And today I want to talk to you about uh, a little place called Ephesus. Uh, it wasn't actually a little place. Ephesus was quite a wealthy, prosperous place in Asia Minor in the first century. Uh, uh, Ephesus was known for its bustling harbours. Uh, Ephesus was known for its gymnasiums uh, and its bars. And it was known for its outright paganism. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, which you read about in, in chapter 18, we're just laying the context now. Paul, in his second missionary journey, passes through Ephesus on his way, he goes off to Corinth for a little while, but uh, he passes through Ephesus and plants a church there and leaves it in the charge of two people called Priscilla and Aquila. And the reason I love Ephesus is because you could not put your finger on the map and pick a more decadent, more secular, more pagan city in the first century Bear with me for a moment and have a look at what God does in Ephesus and have a look at how he does it. Let's press the rewind button for a moment. There's a, there's a passage I really like. There's a man by the name of Apollos. And if you've read Corinthians, uh, you might have read a phrase that says, uh, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so Apollos uh, will, after this, he goes and ministers for some time in the, in the church at Corinth. Have a listen to this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus and he was an eloquent man and competent in the scriptures. You're going to find that he's missing something. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, that means being passionate and on fire, uh, being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. It's interesting. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and that's when, I love this passage, that's when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. Apollos, you're about 80% there, mate. We just need to fine-tune a few things. 
Paulus, by the way, it pays off dividends. And when he had wished to cross to Acacia, uh, the brothers encouraged him and he wrote to the disciples and they welcomed him. Now, Apollos leaves Ephesus. Paul arrives at Ephesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he finds some disciples. So Paul has planted a church in Ephesus. Uh, He's left it in the charge of Priscilla and Aquila. He's left. Apollos has been doing a little bit of preaching. Priscilla and Aquila have been doing the work of the Lord. And he stumbles upon some disciples. Not a whole lot's happening in Ephesus just yet. But he stumbles upon some disciples and he asks them a really important question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the answer is also enormously profound, but that word receive means to lay hold of, and the emphasis in that word in the Greek is the assertiveness of the one that is laying hold of. That is us. Have you received, have you laid hold of the Holy Spirit? In other words, what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit's available to anybody. He's a wonderful, perfect person and gentleman that wants to build a relationship with everybody. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you laid hold of the Holy Spirit? You're missing something. But here's what they say. And they said, but we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Nobody's told us. And so we see they're missing, but they're still going along, all right? Let's let's keep going along. Verse 3, and he says, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. John the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. Paul said, John baptised with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The word came, uh, this is all for next year when we work our way through the book of Acts and study the Holy Spirit. But that word came, the best way to understand it, it's used in other places in the New Testament where people entered into a building. Paul laid his hands on these guys. There's 12 of them, by the way. He lays his hands on these guys, only 12 of them. They receive the Holy Spirit. And that's just like somebody went and took that cord at the factory and plugged it in. Now, these guys have been doing a, a good work in Ephesus. They've been, they're disciples, they, they, they believe in Christ, they've been baptised uh, to the light they have received, they've walked in the light that they have received. Paul comes, he has, he has more information, he has, he has a message for them about the Holy Spirit, they receive the Holy Spirit, and what God does in Ephesus is nothing short of a radical revival and miracle. Because... Ephesus at the time, yes, it was a place that was deeply lost in paganism, but it was a huge place filled with idolatry. And idolatry in the first century is a little bit different how it plays out, but it's the same as it is today. It's just when you take something and you put it in God's place in your life. And there were so many, I mean, the Romans had so many gods. The Romans, if you got up in the morning and and you were a Roman, you believed that there was a god of the toothbrush and a god of the toothpaste. And I mean, by the time you finished paying homage, you haven't even got time to brush your teeth. (laughs) But 
Ephesus is known for the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, which is still today uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a huge temple that was in Ephesus, and it was the center of their wealth and their power. Um, heaps of tourists would come to the Artemis temple, and they would buy trinkets, and they would buy uh, uh, graven images that were made for them, and, and they would look at the splendor and, uh, of Diana, and everything that was in that city, all of the wealth, all of the prosperity, it revolved around this temple, and uh, so prominent was this temple and the religion of Diana the goddess. Uh, so apparent was this that the uh, city officials would stop business for a month every year and hold a huge celebration. All of that stops. What, what happens is, and, and we're going to breeze through some passages, but what happens is Paul begins to reason in the synagogue. And then some stubborn-hearted People decide, well, we don't like this, so they kick up a stink, and, and Paul goes and rents a building. It's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And he teaches there for almost two to three years. Sometimes we think some of the deepest and most profound works of God happen in five minutes, but they happen over a period of time. God does the groundwork. But have a look at what happens here. So after this, verse 10, they continued for two years, it says, so that in verse 10, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus became a hub. If you could imagine a wheel for a moment, Ephesus was the center of the wheel where everybody went out and took the gospel all throughout Asia. They sent prominent leaders to other churches, uh, prominent leaders uh, in the Ephesus church. The church is now founded, it's flourishing. Uh, there's strong evidence that uh, the Apostle John, after he is released from the Isle of Patmos, he takes the mother of Christ, Mary, and he, they both die a natural death ministering in Ephesus. Verse 11, and uh, we, we'll work through this for a moment, but... The, the result of this is profound. Verse 11 says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God was doing the miracles, by the way. Paul was just the hands. But then something happens, which most of us are probably aware of, that it, so that even the handkerchiefs or the aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which apparently was a thing in those days. Uh, we know about the seven sons of Sceva, Right? So the seven sons of Sceva, they, they see everything that's going on and they think, well, this looks good. So they go up to a man that's possessed by the... And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. In Tasmania, if you enter a fight fully clothed and you leave naked and they hand you the bill for the dry cleaning, you lost. <laughs> and that's what happens to these guys. These guys walk up uh, and they say, in the name of Jesus, the Paul preaches, we command you to come out. And, and the evil spirit answers them and gives them a heck of a hiding. And sends them on their way. But it's that event that has a profound effect. If we keep reading on, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I recognise. That's interesting. Uh, but who are you? Who are you? You don't have any relationship. You're not carrying the authority. 
It's interesting. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They lost. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I love that verse. Fear, reverential fear of God. All of a sudden, what happens in Ephesus is these guys go, God's not a toy. God, what the sons of Sceva learnt is God's not a force. The Holy Spirit is not a force that we whip up or control or manipulate. He is a person that wants to dwell and reside in each and every one of us. Fear fell upon them all and the name of Jesus was extolled. And that word extolled means to be esteemed. The name of Christ, Jesus was put back in his rightful place. Here's how to know if you're experiencing revival. Here's how to know what it looks like when God is moving. Have a listen to this. Also, many of those who were now believers, so we're talking believers, many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. These guys are coming out in repentance and saying, God is not a toy. He's not to be trifled with. Uh, I'm coming and laying it all bare. Then have a listen to this. And a number of those who uh, had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. An immeasurable amount. They just burned the books. All of the kale cookbooks. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Have a listen to this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved. He goes back to Macedonia, Acacia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia. Verse 23, about that time there arose, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. These guys had caused a disturbance. We start off with 12 men that don't really know their left hand from their right hand when it comes to theology. We start off with a small band of believers in the back of nowhere in a place of Ephesus, completely outnumbered, completely irrelevant concerning... These guys weren't even a blip on the radar at Ephesus. But you plug 12 men into the Holy Spirit. Have a look at what God does in that place. Over a period of two to three years, he turns Ephesus upside down to the point where now this no little disturbance means that people are abandoning the worship of the goddess Diana. Uh, There are no longer missionaries. People are saying, you know, this Paul, he's a nuisance, not only here in Ephesus, but he's a nuisance everywhere. He's drying up our trade. He's threatening our way of life. Our prosperity is in danger. Our power and prestige is in danger. It wasn't many years after this it was going to go anyway. It turns out that uh, Ephesus had a problem they couldn't see. Uh, Its bustling harbours were responsible for its wealth because of the trade that would come in, but silt would build up and the ships couldn't get in. But God turned Ephesus upside down and there was a riot in the city. Because God 
had caused the divine disturbance. And I'm excited when I read that. I get excited when I read that because here we are, a small group of believers. And there is great hope for every one of us. If we would lay hold of the Holy Spirit and plug in, I believe that God could cause the exact same divine disturbance in Brisbane. Amongst all of the idol worshippers, amongst those that are, that are comfortable in their power and their prestige and their prosperity, that God would shake them and cause a divine disturbance. I believe it can happen. I believe in the power of God. It won't be our power. Fast forward. So number one, I see a church plugged into the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe what God can do. Fast forward almost 10 years to the early AD 60s. Paul writes his letter to Ephesus, a really encouraging letter in a lot of ways. If you, if you, if you read through uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, you will find it has some profound chapters in it. And, and most of the language is very, very uh, uplifting and encouraging, but it would only be four or five years later that, that Paul would send Timothy to Ephesus. Because... What had started out well, some problems had started to creep in. Remember that factory? Had all the, had all the machinery and all the decorations, but there was, there was nothing going on. There was no power. Ephesus had <coughs> begun to become a little bit like that. Let me describe the lay of the land. Uh, you have to feel for Timothy and Titus, by the way, when you're reading through the New Testament. Uh, they, were, uh, they were Paul's fix-up guys. They were, you know what, you need to go to Corinth and fix this up. And there were some problems at Corinth, let's, let's be real, if you read the first uh, epistle of Corinth, there were some issues at Corinth. Uh, then he sends Titus to uh, an island called Crete. And so if you've ever heard the expression, you little cretin, that actually flows from, that flows from Crete because of the reputation that they had. They were downright Cretans. So he sends Titus to Crete, but he sends Timothy to Ephesus. And when Timothy gets to Ephesus, he is confronted with enormous doctrinal drift. What had begun well and the Holy Spirit had done so well. Paul's, Paul's in prison by the time he writes this letter. He knows uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll find ourselves, but he knows when he writes these letters, his time is near. He knows uh, this possibility that it's his second imprisonment in Rome. He knows that his trial is coming to an end. He knows what the result of that trial will be. They want to get rid of him, but they have to do it politically because he's a Roman citizen, so they have to do it in the right way. And, and so Timothy arrives at Ephesus, and here's what he finds. He finds corrupt teachers. He finds, uh, when he gets there, if you read through the first epistle as well as the second epistle, uh, he finds unconverted, unqualified elders. The elders basically said to Timothy, this was our church before you got here, it's our church now, and it'll be our church when you're gone. <laughs> We're in charge, take a seat. Uh, that's why Paul would write, don't let them look down their nose at you, Timothy. But let's go through all of the problems because there's one remedy that Paul gives Timothy. Uh, what he was confronted with when he arrives at the church at Ephesus is not only corrupt teachers and enormous doctrinal drift and aggressive unconverted elders and unqualified deacons, 
But he finds passive men, men that have said, you know what, we're, we're going to tap out. We're just going to take your seat up the back. We're not going to get involved. Uh, we're going to, you know, we know what our responsibility is, but we've decided we're not going to. We need men today in the Church of Jesus Christ, by the way. And, and the result of that was there was an enormous amount of aggressive women that decided we're going to take that responsibility. And that's important today. It's important for that verse that says, I do not allow women to teach or have authority over men. What is going on there? Hang on, uh, Pastor Sean, you let women speak. Exactly, of course, because we've missed the context. The reason Paul would even say that to Timothy is because these women had decided we're going to take over and they were teaching the same corrupt teaching that all of the corrupt teachers were. Paul says, you've got to tell them to be quiet. Had an application to that particular church. And throughout the first epistle, Paul uses Greek language that sounds like this. Son, strap yourself into the pulpit and preach the word of God until I can get there. Throughout the first epistle, here's what Paul's saying. Just preach the word until I can get there. Hold the fort until I can get there. And today... We could look across sections of Christianity. We could, we could listen to the reports of the culture around us. We could, you could get lost in watching a current affair as they slam Hillsong and all the other churches and they're, they're dragging all these people through the courts and, and all that. You could, you could lose hope, but I have great hope in the church. There may be some problems, but God has got some great remedies and we don't need to focus on them. And what Paul says to Timothy is, don't focus on all of that. Just focus on preaching the word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I love this chapter, but let, let me read it for you first and, and you will be forgiven thinking I'm speaking or reading about non-believers. Uh, chapter 3, 2 Timothy verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days, uh, can I press the pause button? <laughs> uh, just, uh, just so that we're fresh on this, every generation of Christians since the first church have, were convinced and are convinced they are in the last days. Uh, so we just need to, we need to cover that off right now. Are we living in the last days today? The answer is we possibly could be. Uh, the other answer is we are a darn sight closer than they were 2,000 years ago. <laughs> but what Paul says here, man, he could, have written, he could have written a letter to the church in the West today. Have a listen to this. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. Anybody ever experienced times of difficulty? If you are passionately following Christ and you're not being persecuted and challenged like they were at Ephesus, chances are you're not disturbing anybody. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Reuben, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. Paul, you've got too much time in your hands to write a list like this. Not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that was not a description of non-believers. It was a description of the church. How do we know that? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's what Paul says. Paul is saying to Timothy, you know what? 
and I'm not going to go through that list again. We don't have time to go through that list again. It's a sermon for another day, but here's what Paul is saying. These guys sound good on the outside. Everything looks good on the outside. They can speak to speak, but on the inside, they are full of dead men's bones. On the inside, they still want all the pleasures of this world. On the inside, they still want life on their own terms. On, on the inside, Monday morning, they're already planning to get up and run off into their sins. They have a form of godliness. They have an outward appearance of godliness. But they're not plugged into the power. And here's what Paul says to Timothy. Reading from verse 10, I I love... 2 Timothy chapter 2 has my life verse in it. Because throughout this epistle, leading up to what he's about to say, here's what he says in chapter 2. First of all, he gives analogies of a, of a good soldier. He gives analogies of a, uh, of a farmer. He gives an analogies of an athlete. And those analogies are all about, you know what, Timothy? Live your Christian life like them. Uh, people who go about their daily business but with a view to a bigger end. There's a, there's a bigger goal. You're living for something far bigger. Uh, what you're doing today is something that's far bigger. So he says, go on with that. He comes down and he says, verse 14, and uh, for me, this is the, these are the two verses that hold me in sway. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. I love verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Timothy, do your best. They're going to do what they're going to do. But do your best to present yourself as one approved, approved after testing. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. I love this last part. This last part of this verse speaks volumes rightly handling the word of truth. And the reason that's important is there must be a right way to handle God's truth and there must be a wrong way. What Timothy found when he got to Ephesus was everybody was reading from the book, but they had twisted it and distorted it for their own gains In their own sinful pleasures. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, chapter 3, verse 15, moving on, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I love this verse. Most of us will know this verse. Anybody here today feel like they could do with God breathing in them? Anybody here like to know God's breath breathing in them? Here's what, uh, uh, here's what Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, preach the word, verse 2, be ready in season and out season. Here's what, here's what Paul's remedy to Timothy is. When you get to Ephesus, preach the word, live the word, live an example. And if you could sum that up, 
You could sum it up with what I call a straight stick. There's a man by the name of F.W. Borum, and if you've hung around Andrew Corbett for five minutes, you've heard about F.W. Borum. Uh, F.W. Borum, for those who don't know, F.W. Borum was a pastor in Hobart uh, through World War I and onwards. And World War I, uh, actually, he, he advised many young men to go to World War I, and many of them died, and he had a nervous breakdown. It, it affected him so deeply. But, but F.W. Borum was a great preacher and a great pastor, And he said, he said, it's not my duty to spend my time going around pointing out the crooks in everybody else's stick. He said, God has called me just to lay down a straight stick. He says, and they will see it for themselves. Friends, this morning I see a church full of the Holy Spirit full of the power of the Holy Spirit, living in a vital relationship with the Holy Spirit, living according to God's word, laying down a straight stick, not only to the community around us, but also everybody else. And I believe in the power of God's word. I believe in the power of God's word to do its work in our lives and subsequently in our community. I'm excited this morning. Thank you, Robin and others. I'm excited because I believe that was spot on. God wants to move us. God wants to take us deeper and further. And I believe he's preparing us for that. And... Throughout Vision Month and leading up to Partnership Sunday, what we're asking is that you would join with us in that vision to cause a divine disturbance. Uh, I, I see a church of believers in their workplace and in their schools. When they're shopping for kale, when they're going about their daily business, but they're causing a divine disturbance wherever they go. On fire for God. And in relationship with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, our heart is that you would take each one of us And do what you did at Ephesus. That we would lay hold of the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would live your word. And that you would use us to cause a divine disturbance wherever we go. Father, this morning I confess our programs will never be enough. Our decorations, our systems will never be enough. We need the power of the Holy Spirit.
Open our eyes and lead us and teach us and guide us. We pray in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.